Well, good afternoon. Uh, thank you uh, to Joan for reading from uh, Romans chapter 8. We're not in Romans chapter 8, though. That chapter or those verses are very relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. We're, we're still in Acts chapter 5, and uh, more about that in a moment. By way of introduction, sometimes when you see protests uh, or marches on television, people have placards, don't they? I nearly made one. Um, placards. And, and sometimes you'll hear a ringleader say something like, what do we want? And on the placard it'll say, more pay, or something like that. And then everyone goes, when do we want it? Now. now. There you go, see. What do we want? When do we want it? There's, there are a lot of parodies of this uh, particular idea that you could invent. Um, I came across this one. What do we want? A cure for laziness. And when do we want it? Later. Um, I've got a few of these. You've gone all afternoon like this. What do we want? Respectful discourse. When do we want it? Now would be agreeable to me, but I'm interested in your opinion. See what they did there? Um, what do we want? A cure for bipolar disorder. When do we want it? We don't want it anymore. That's not meant to offend anyone who's got bipolar disorder. I'm sorry. What do we want? Moderation. When do we want it? In a reasonable time frame. How many of these did I put? Too many. What do we want? Time travel. When do we want it? It's irrelevant. Well, it would be, wouldn't it? Was that our last one? Oh, yeah, it was. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, one thing I have noticed is that this activity of protest with placards is very much limited to humans um, we have a little colony of chickens at home um, they're called Professor McGonagall Heidi Mildred and Belle I had to check that with my children I wanted to call them Dipper and um, I wasn't allowed I, I would be very shocked if I came home one day and the chickens were there in the garden with their placards or clucking away. What do we want? More food. When do we want it? How? The kind is, the, the, the thing is, that this kind of activity of uh, protest expresses something, I, I think, of human desire, doesn't it? Human aspiration. And, it, and it's not something that animals share. We alone, as human beings, have the capacity to, to want things, to protest when things are not what they should be, to express our disappointment, and to yearn for things to be different or better, or for change to come. I think in some ways, uh, and Andrew said at the start, I was glad he did, that this is the first uh, Sunday of a new year. And it's a good time of year, isn't it, to stop and ask the question, what do we want? What do we want in this new year? An old school friend of mine posted on Facebook the other day, like many other people did, uh, short and sweet but heartfelt, health, wealth and happiness to one and all, good luck for 2014. That's fairly typical, isn't it? Health, wealth and happiness. What do we want? Health, wealth and happiness. When do we want it? Well, now, if we could have it. For some of us, maybe that question will evoke uh, painful thoughts, though. Perhaps uh, some of us, e even in church today, may maybe have secret struggles. Um, for some of us, it might evoke exciting thoughts of a new year, with challenge and determination and uh, things uh, to accomplish. Maybe in some of our hearts today there's a sense of feeling overwhelmed. And maybe some of us might be thinking, if, if you only knew my situation, you would know that what I really need is nothing short of a miracle. What do we need? What do we want? A miracle. When do we want it? Now. Well, this afternoon, I want us to think about 
the whole subject of miracles and the miraculous. And I've begun like that, as, as I said, because I, I think this, this whole subject of miracles does speak of human desire. Miracle stories, I think, fascinate us because we yearn very deeply in our hearts for all sorts of things. We long for freedom. We long for security. We long for peace. We long for a degree of prosperity. We long for relationships that are wholesome and fulfilling and not broken. I I, I think very often what we're longing for is the reassurance of a happy ending. Um, I, I don't see any of those aspirations in my four chickens. But I see them everywhere all around when I look at other people and see them often reflected in my own heart. As part of my research for this uh, topic, I went to a couple of bookstores this week uh, to check out their shelves on spirituality just to see what books on miracles there might be. And uh, I probably looked a bit odd in the bookstore with my phone, making notes on the different books that were on the shelf there. I had to write them down because my memory's going. But I found books there with titles like Getting Things Done, How to Take Charge of Your Life, How You Can Stop Worrying and Start Living. There was one book called Get the Guy. I was really fascinated by that one. Um, not, not because I want to get the guy but I want to know what the women are doing to get the guy I suppose, just to be clear um, there was one called Get the Life You Want Paul McKenna had a whole row of books you know Paul McKenna I'm, I can make you thin, I can make you happy I can make you smarter I can make you look like me no, no that was a joke that one there was a row on horoscopes There was even books on how to identify fairies. There was another row on how to connect with various types of angels. And this book uh, caught my eye. You saw a sneak preview earlier. This only came out in October. Angel Prayers. And just note, uh, can you see the subtitle there? Harnessing the Help of Heaven to Create Miracles. By someone called Carl Gray. What blows me away, when this was more than one bookstore, what blows me away is that we apparently live in the age of science, rationality, this is what people tell us, and yet the bookstores I visited betray the deep yearning in people's hearts for something more. What do we want? All sorts of things. Interestingly, while I was in the two different bookshops I went to, there were three separate couples and one individual, I was only there a short time, who were all obviously searching for some book. And all of them, one couple, the, 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 the guy found the book that they were looking for. This is the one, this is the book, look at this. And was reading extracts from the book to his partner, excitedly, they hadn't even bought the book. This is the one that we're on about. This is the thing that's going to sort our lives out. They were yearning, they were searching, they were wanting something and they felt they'd found it in this book title that they were excitedly looking at. Well, we're we're going through the the book of Acts at the moment and you will have realised if you've been here that we've seen some miraculous events occur in the narrative already and we reached chapter 5 and this little summary section, we, last time I said to you that we were going to just spend a couple of weeks looking at this section. So it's on page 1097 in the Red Church Bibles. And we'll just read these verses together. Um, and we're just going to think about, I think at some point as we go through Acts, we need to face this issue of miracles. What is their place? What are they there for? Um, And that's what we're going to try and do. So Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. Luke writes, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. 
And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That's a place in the temple in Jerusalem. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Well, so reads God's word. And uh, let's have a little think then about this issue of miracles. There's a fair bit of... um, miraculous stuff going on in the narrative and acts so what, what I want to try and do there, there's so, so many different ways we could, could go with this um, first of all I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about two possible reactions to a passage like that one and, um, and as, as we kind of explore that we'll touch on some important themes hopefully and then Uh, to close uh, after that I I want to try to think about not not so much what the miracles are not there to do but what they are there to do and so we'll think about what miracles are for so two possible reactions we'll deal with some positives and negatives in that and then we'll think about what the miracles are there for Um, does that make sense? Okay. let's uh, talk then about Reaction number one. Scepticism. Maybe that's you today. Maybe many people who read these verses read them and go, ha ha, this is why I don't believe the Bible. This kind of thing just doesn't happen. And if this is in the Bible, I want nothing to do with it. That's called scepticism. Um... I think some people will read passages like this and struggle to accept them as true and legitimate. All sorts of reasons are put forward as to what motivated the author or the authors to include this sort of miraculous stuff in the narrative. But the underlying reaction is one of asserting that this sort of thing, miracles don't happen. So this can't be true. Um, you, you might know the name Thomas Jefferson. Um, he was one of the founding fathers of the American nation in the late 1700s. And he and a lot of his companions, very influential and capable men, were what we would call theologically deists. That, that means that they were religious in a sense, they, they loved to talk and preach and discuss morality and uh, behaviour. But they, they had the belief that God started the world a bit like a, a watchmaker. Makes a watch, winds it up, and then gives it to some punter who comes into the shop, and then the watch runs. Cause it's, so God, God in creation kind of wound the watch up, and then now he's gone on holiday somewhere. We don't know where he is. He's gone over there somewhere and he's left the world to run according to its own natural laws. In other words, God is very far away. God would never intervene in the world he has made. This is all there is. God started it, but he's left it to run. And there is no such thing as supernatural intervention. Thomas Jefferson actually wrote a compilation of the life of Jesus. He he called it The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Very interesting title. But what he did was he he went through the Gospels and he cut out, I don't don't know if you could do this, you know, maybe had it written down, and he he actually cut out any, any reference to anything miraculous he got rid of. So what, it, what he wanted was to keep all the teaching, the ethics, all the stuff that was natural, but jettison all of the stuff that was supernatural. 
very interesting. Three, 300 years ago, and I, I think that would resonate for many people in our modern culture, that one of the problems for us, I think, when we read passages like this and when we read miracles, is that we're, we're very deeply affected by the way our culture has developed in history. And uh, men like Thomas Jefferson, and there are people like this now, maybe you feel you're, you're like this, often see the world as split between natural, supernatural, natural, supernatural. And Thomas Jefferson and his friends believe that those two dimensions are never going to cross. God doesn't intervene. He's there, but he's far away. And the natural and the supernatural, they never cross over. God minds his own business. And we should be moral and good, but we should also mind our own business. God never intervenes. I I want to suggest to you, if if you're still with me, that that is a false separation. And that that, that, that separation is one that we intuitively understand because of where we are in history. But people who read the Bible or lived in Bible times or or even after Bible times wouldn't have seen that distinction in that way. They wouldn't have made a separation between what was natural or supernatural. You can't do that from a biblical point of view because the Bible teaches, first of all, that God made everything that there is out of nothing by the word of his power and that every day he sustains all that does exist by that same word of power. In other words, according to the Bible, the first and perhaps the greatest miracle is creation itself. Everything that exists only exists because God brought it into existence and continues to sustain it. So the Bible doesn't split the natural world and the supernatural world. Rather, when you come to the Bible, it attributes all things to the sovereign control of God. Skeptics often want to separate the natural world and the supernatural, and then they'll say, what do we want? Evidence. And when do we want it? Now. Show me some evidence. But actually, biblically, the very regularity of the natural world is an evidence of God's creative power and sustaining word. If you go back into the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 8, you'll find the story of Noah. And the very last verse of that chapter, God makes a promise. And he says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. In other words, what God's saying is, it is a mark of my faithfulness that the natural world is normal. And that you, when you go to bed tonight, you will expect to set your alarm, because tomorrow, the morning will come. Hopefully you'll sleep, and not toss and turn, but day follows night, seasons follow seasons. All of those things are normal and natural, not what a sceptic would call supernatural, but they're still under the sovereign control and authority and power of God. The natural laws of physics are not an alternative to God or a substitute for God. They are, in actual fact, an expression of his ongoing, intimate and detailed and daily involvement with his will. And the problem with scepticism is that it twists the natural world into a kind of closed materialistic system and excludes God from the picture. God's, God might have started it, but he's gone on holiday. And this is all there is. When in actual fact, that we're, the, the Bible says that we live and move and have our being in him. There's a relevant connection here in our passage in in Acts chapter 5. Well, we didn't read the verse, actually. It's the next one. You remember this group called the Sadducees? Um, 
Rich talked about them early doors in, in Acts. The Sadducees were the ruling elite. They were the they were kind of like the upper classes. The, they, were the, they were the posh guys who had the power. In the Bible, we're told that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, two religious groups, had a lot of conflict. And one of the reasons for it was that the Sadducees didn't believe there was any resurrection. Uh, Luke actually tells us in, later on in Acts, in, in brackets, he, he's talking, Paul giving a speech, and he says in brackets, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection or in angels or spirits. Uh, they, they're, they're like Thomas Jefferson. This is a closed system. There's no supernatural intervention. It's significant because they came to Jesus in Mark's Gospel and they asked him a very bizarre question. I don't know if you remember this. And they wanted to show Jesus up. So they came to Jesus and said, there was a man who got married and, uh, and, he, and the wife died. Uh, sorry, the, ma- the man died. But he was se- one of seven brothers. The wife married one of the brothers. And then he died. And she went through all the seven brothers. And then they said to Jesus, in heaven, who will she be married to? And what they were trying to do was embarrass Jesus, trip him up, to make him think, this resurrection, it's a stupid idea. And Jesus, very interestingly, answered their question. He said, you are in error for two reasons. Number one, you don't know your Bibles. And number two, you don't know the power of God. The issue for the Sadducees is that their conception of God, like Thomas Jefferson was, He's not a God who can intervene in human affairs. He's distant. And I I want to suggest, uh, if I'm speaking to someone who's a skeptic, I don't want to upset you, but I want to suggest that skepticism always, the root of skepticism is to depersonalize God. We don't want a personal God who can really do things. And there's modern-day Sadducees and modern-day Thomas Jeffersons who want the morality, but they can't imagine a God who actually does something. Some of you know the writer C.S. Lewis. You know that name. He's famous for all the Narnia stories. But in the 1940s, he wrote a book called Miracles. And uh, this is what he said in 1947. This is as relevant now as it was then. He said this, the sort of God conceived by the popular religion of our own times would almost certainly work no miracles. Speak about honesty, truth and goodness or about a God who is simply the indwelling principle of these three. Speak about a great spiritual force pervading all these things, a common mind of which we are all part, a pool of generalised spirituality to which we can all flow and you will command a generalised interest. But the temperature drops as soon as you mention a God who has purposes and who performs particular actions, who does one thing and not another. A concrete, choosing, commanding, prohibiting God with a determinate character. People become embarrassed or angry. The popular religion excludes miracles because it excludes the living God of Christianity and believes instead in a God who obviously would not do miracles. There's a lot in that. I think the point I'm trying to make is, well, the point Lewis is making, and the point I'm trying to introduce Lewis to you for, is there's no logical or philosophical reason for miracles not to happen. If God exists, then the existence of miracles shouldn't surprise us. That, that's the underlying point. Skepticism is a preconceived bias because it assumes that God doesn't exist and then begs the question, well, these miracles can't have happened, can they? But if God exists, and if he is the creator, then these miracles really aren't a logical problem. They're not a philosophical problem. God reveals himself to us 
in the natural world as he creates and sustains it and he's completely and sovereignly free to intervene in the affairs of humans when he chooses to. And when you stop and think about it, after creation, the the greatest miracle is the incarnation, isn't it? In which the creator actually enters the creation as a participant in the human race. Jesus Christ is not a vague force, but a living, breathing personality. And then remember too that the context of Acts here, as we saw at the beginning, is that the book of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus did on earth physically and and what he's now doing from heaven through his disciples and the power of his Holy Spirit. So this same God involved in the incarnation and the pouring out of his spirit is involved here in the book of Acts intervening in human affairs. So reaction number one, scepticism. We, 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 we shouldn't think that miracles are impossible unless we rule out the existence of God. And, and that, that might be a position that you want to take. Here's another reaction that's the opposite extreme to scepticism. <coughs> Triumphalism. I don't know if that's even a word, but I think you know what I mean by that. This, uh, some of the people will read passages like this and say, this kind of stuff should be happening all the time. If God could do it then, he can do it now. That's true. So claim it, brother. Claim it, sister. Claim the victory that's yours in Jesus. It isn't God's will for you to be in need. Look at what it says here in Acts. Everybody who was brought was healed. What are you sick for? Claim the victory. That is what I would describe as triumphalist. If a skeptic says, what do we want? Evidence. When do we want it? Now. I think a triumphalist says, what do we want? Heaven. When do we want it? Now. Here. In this place. Let's quickly remind ourselves of a few things about biblical miracles. I'm not talking about magic and myths. Let's keep to the biblical record of the miracles that we know. First of all, I want to suggest to you that miracles actually are relatively rare in history there's a lot of them going on in here here. but when you think of 2,000 odd years of Bible history there are huge swathes of that biblical history where nothing miraculous happened at all there are probably three main times in history when miraculous signs and wonders (coughs) happened the time of Moses time of Elijah and Elisha or Elisha and then in the Gospels Jesus and the aftermath of that with his apostles so actually there are huge swathes of history where people got sick and died godly people trusting God in the Old Testament and there were no miracles at all so that's the first just a, that's an ob- observation to make miracles are relatively rare in Bible history. I I, I should add as well that the kind of miracles we're talking about there in those three instances as well, there's one or two others too, are are very dramatic and different to the kind of things that are often claimed as miracles today. So when when I get a leaflet from a church near us that says, come to our healing service on Saturday, bring your ailments and God can heal you. I'm not at all sure that it's the same thing that's going on there that's going on here. It doesn't seem to be in the same category. Um, So that's another point as well, but relatively rare. Secondly, these miracles were never designed to be permanent. Our passage here in Acts chapter 5 says, 
that all the sick and tormented came and all of them were healed, which is tremendous. But I can tell you fairly confidently that there's not a single one of them still alive now. So they all had an amazing experience here in Jerusalem, but later on they all got sick and died of something else, I think. I'm, I'm pretty sure none of them are alive. So although this is very dramatic and very amazing and very positive for those who are being helped in this particular way at this particular time, there's, there's still something transient and, and not permanent about it. These miracles were a temporary blessing. What one writer says, these miracles are a small relief on a road that we are all heading downwards on. And there's a little blip there as people are healed and then they get sick again and continue on the same road that we're all on. So they weren't permanent. Does that make sense? Relatively rare in history, not permanent. Thirdly, and to be quick, miracles were not a guarantee. One of the things I think is really amazing about this very passage, there's a miracle in the next section, we'll deal with this next week, God willing, when the apostles are miraculously released from jail and the very same day they end up back in jail. In chapter 12, we're told that um, Peter, uh, sorry, James was uh, thrown into prison. The people seemed to like it. Herod, it seems, beheaded him. He wasn't rescued at all. The, Herod thought the people were pleased by what he'd done, so he arrested Peter, and an angel comes and rescues Peter. So two apostles in the same prison, one of them has his head chopped off, the other one gets rescued by an angel. So the, the, I think the only thing we can say about that is that, that that shows us that God could intervene, but sometimes he didn't. Does that mean he didn't care for James, and that he did love Peter? Or did God have something else going on? It, it, it seems that these miracles were not a guarantee. Miracles also didn't necessarily lead to true faith. In, in our modern age, a number of biblical teachers have argued something like this. What, what we need in our churches today is dramatic and powerful and persuasive miracles because how on earth will the world believe the gospel unless they see miraculous things happening for people to truly respond to the gospel they need convincing by undeniable demonstrations of power ironically this is where the triumphalists agree with the skeptics because the skeptics say, if only I'd been there, uh, what I want is evidence. I'm a rational person. If I could see it with my own eyes, then I would be a believer. The truth is, though, that a lot of the time, the miracles, and I'm thinking about New Testament miracles here particularly, did not lead to true faith at all. Even in this passage, it seems that the reverse was happening, interestingly. Just taking this passage as an example, you might think that people were healed and then people responded to the gospel. Luke specifically says it was the other way around. In verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were had added to their number. As a result, People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. So what, what Luke's telling us is that numbers of people were converted and as a result of that growth, people then began to think, something's going on here. So it wasn't the miracles that led to people responding to the gospel. It actually was working the other way around in this particular instance here. Let me give you some examples from the Gospels. Do you remember the ten lepers who were healed by Jesus? What was significant about that story? Only one of them. So ten lepers in a group, Jesus heals them all, go to the temple, 
And one of them came back and Jesus said, and he was a Samaritan, the nine Jewish ones who should have known better, go off and carry on living life, no thought for Christ at all. What about the leaders who saw Lazarus with all his kind of embalming bandages on, stumble out of a tomb into the daylight? It says in John chapter 11 that they went out and plotted to kill Jesus. They saw a man raised from the dead who'd been dead four days come out of a tomb and they went out and had a meeting and plotted to kill Jesus. So when someone says, if I'd been there and seen it, I would, I would, have, I would have believed. That, that's not the evidence in the Gospels. What about the crowds in John 6 that wanted bread but not Christ? Do you remember that story? Jesus feeds the crowds. And John tells us in chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus knew that they wanted to come and make him king by force. You would, wouldn't you? Who wouldn't want a king that could make bread like that? You'd never be in famine. Let's make him king. Be fantastic. Everyone will want to come and live here. Jesus disappears. They follow him across the lake. Jesus then confronts them very bluntly with the fact that they were not bothered about the miracle. You're not interested in me because you've seen a miracle, but only because you've had your fill. That's what he said to them. And later on in the same chapter, after Jesus teaches them, John then writes, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They saw the most amazing things with their own eyes. And Jesus sadly turns to his disciples and says, do you want to leave too? Jesus is worried there'll be no one left. 5,000 people. It's a bit uncomfortable though. We like the bread, but we're not sure about the message. Jesus himself tells the story of two men who died. One goes to hell, one goes to heaven. And in the story, the one in hell pleads with Abraham that someone would go and warn his brothers. And Abraham says to him in the story, if they they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. That's harsh, isn't it? So miracles didn't necessarily lead to true faith, even when Jesus did them. What can we say about triumphalism? Uh, this, this kind of thinking, I, I think, can induce a lot of fragile faith. And here, here's the deal, and this is a question we have to face, isn't it? Here, here's a story, an account in the Bible, a summary. And you come to this passage, and you're sick, and you're tormented. And you think in your heart, why does God not heal me? Is it because I've sinned? Is God not like me? This kind of triumphalism was present in the early church. Paul wrote to Christians in Corinth to condemn their so-called super-apostles who basically validated their ministry on the size of their miracles they could do. My miracles are bigger than your miracles, so I must be a super apostle and better than you. Me and Richard have this argument in the office all the time. And what does Paul do? He, he, he famously grounds his credentials as an apostle who had done miracles, not in his miraculous powers, but in his sufferings. You remember that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? He grounds his credentials in the fact that he knew pain. And you have to wonder, if Paul could do miracles, why was his life so full of pain? And he says, I've been shipwrecked, I've been flogged, I've been left for dead, I've been stoned. But isn't this true of Jesus too? 
Jesus is the great miracle worker in the Gospels, and yet he's portrayed far more profoundly as the crucified one who died in shame and weakness. And those who crucified him said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Come down off the cross and we'll believe. What do we want? Evidence. When do we want it? Now. Come down off the cross and then we'll believe in you. They were mocking his weakness and trying to get him to think like a helpless victim that God had abandoned. And it's a lie. If scepticism depersonalizes God, I want to suggest that triumphalism traumatizes victims. Triumphalism always makes things worse for people who are suffering. And what we need to know is not that God is absent because he hasn't healed us, but that in actual fact he is very present with us in our difficulties. So, well, that, that's two, two reactions, possible reactions. Maybe that resonates with you, I don't know. First, what skepticism. Secondly, triumphalism. Our conclusion is that God is the creator and while he can intervene directly and in extraordinary ways at times in human affairs, he doesn't always do it in extraordinary ways. And I think we need to avoid those two extremes. We need to, what, what is, one writer says, what is needed is neither scepticism about genuine divine healings on the one hand, nor exaggeration or exploitation of them on the other. I think that's very sensible. So the question is, what are they for then? What are these miracles for then? So, very quickly. Number one. These miracles are there. I don't think these are in any particular order. To mark a significant new development in salvation history. I think in a sense that what Luke's doing here is showing both in his gospel and the book of Acts here that the kingdom of God has come. That's really important. It's not that God has not been in control up to this point and now he is. The fact is the time has come. All the preparations have been made. And in the unfolding revelation that God has given to his world, the time has now come for his son to come in the flesh. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to his enemies, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's Jesus' interpretation of the signs. If these things are happening, what it's designed to show you is that the kingdom of God has come. In other words, all of the deadening effects of human sin are now beginning to be reversed. Hope has been born. The evil that exists within God's good world cannot ultimately prevail. God's kingdom has invaded this broken world. And the miracles that happen in Jesus' ministry and in the apostles' ministry are like a marker that something very special has begun. And it's significant, isn't it, that that something special that's beginning has the mark of compassion, kindness, the relief of suffering within it. These miracles are not freakish, oddball, kind of sensationalist miracles. These are people that God cares for. Compassion, kindness. So they mark a significant new development. Secondly, these miracles are there to authenticate leadership credentials. The reason I say this is because of their connection to history. God, God promised in the Old Testament when the Messiah came, certain things would happen. So, for example, in the, in the prophet Isaiah, do you, do you know that passage in Isaiah 35, the highway of holiness? And it says there... Um, 
Let me find the verse. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame will leap like the deer, and the mute tongue sharp for joy. When Jesus comes in the Gospels, what does he do? He opens the eyes of the blind. He unstops the ears of the deaf. He heals the paralyzed. He opens the mouth of those who are mute. If Jesus hadn't done those things, these verses that predict what would happen when the Messiah come, it's kind of the mark of the Messiah was this kind of ministry. So there's something here about credentials. It's an authentication. And it strengthens the credentials of the apostles as they continue what Jesus did in his name. It wasn't a free-for-all, it seems. Luke is very clear, verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. That's what Luke tells us. These delegated representatives of Jesus were able to continue his work in the power of his spirit. Next time, if you look at verse 17, the, the one reaction that the high priest and the Sadducees have is just jealous rage. And it's almost like what's happening is that the authority is shifting from 2,000 years of Judaism and, and the, the Sadducees, the, the, the members of these ruling classes, are showing themselves to be empty. And these apostles and God's power are moving forward. So there's, a, there's an authentication there of their leadership. Uh, thirdly, these miracles are there to illustrate what salvation is like. Uh, you can't really say, it's not like, here's the gospel, and to prove the gospel, we're going to do some miracles. They're much more integrated than that. When a blind person is healed, it's saying something about how God opens people's eyes spiritually. When a lame person walks, it's showing how God energizes the activity of people. When a dead person was raised to life, it showed how God takes a dead sinner and makes them truly live. These miracles are not just an end in themselves, but they're a pit, like a visual aid of the salvation that Christ has come to bring. And in actual fact, the greatest miracle of all, which is permanent, is that God saves people and brings them into his family forever. When God does that, that's not a temporary blessing. It's not like God healing a blind man and then he dies 30 years later. The greatest miracle is, is conversion, isn't it? Someone coming to faith in Jesus. And I, I wanted to say to you this afternoon, if you have Jesus, you actually have more than sight, strength, health, wealth, safety. You, in actual fact, have everything you need in him. The greatest miracle is that you are rich beyond your wildest dreams in Christ. Do you remember Paul's little prologue in Ephesians chapter 1? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms. In the heavenly realms. With what? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's given us everything. Everything. So these miracles are a picture. Lastly, they are a foretaste of a future age. They point to the future. We're not there yet. Revelation chapter 21. This is the future. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God he will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. 
He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I'll give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. The reason I asked John to read from Romans chapter 8, it's one of my favourite chapters, as, as some of you know, in the Bible. In that chapter, creation itself, with its placard, is saying, what do we want? What do we want? Liberty from this groaning, creaking, broken creation that we've become. It says in Romans 8 that creation groans, waiting for the liberty that will come one day. And Revelation 21 there is a fulfillment of that promise. The seeds of it have been born. The miracles in the Bible are like a foretaste of the perfection that we all long for deep down. One day, there will be a new creation, but it's not here yet. These miracles were great, but temporary. But it's like Jesus is pulling the curtain back and saying, one day, it'll be like this all the time. (laughs) That's what the miracles are there to do, to point to that great and glorious future. So these miracles speak to our deepest desires. They show us that human beings are made for something glorious. They teach us that God is in control of his world and that this broken world is not what it was meant to be. The miracles point to the fact that Christ has come, died for our sins, rose again, ascended back to heaven and poured out his life-giving spirit into his world. The miracles point to the fact that Christ is coming again one day to consummate his amazing new kingdom and bring in a glorious new age where sin and death and disappointment and misery will be gone and no more. So my question is, what do you want? What do we want? Do we want some vital thing that will complete our lives and make it better? If only I could, if only I could, if only I had... In the end, the most crucial thing is our relationship with God through Jesus. The most important thing, this is the word of the gospel, to repent and turn from sin and trust in Christ and for God's kingdom to be born in our hearts now, today, as the seal of what will happen one day. How do you know God is with you? How do we know God is here, even in this place? Through miraculous displays of power? Maybe, but not necessarily or even primarily. We know him through the promises of his word. We know him through his ordinary, everyday, providential care. If you're a Christian today, be patient. Trust Christ. And remember when things are hard, which they often are, that we're not in heaven yet, but we will be one day as we trust in him. If you're not a Christian, you need a miracle, not a healed leg, but a a new heart, new life. So let me urge you to trust in Jesus while you can.